this is Matt. I'm the lead pastor at Westminster Baptist Church. Thanks for engaging God's word with us. My prayer for you is that this would be supplemental to your discipleship journey. Uh, if we can connect you with a local church or a discipleship group, uh, please contact us at info at discoverwbc.com. Good morning, church, and happy Thanksgiving, post-Thanksgiving, right? Did you all have a good time with family and friends? Yeah. Hey, we're glad to be back in the Word this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34, if you want to turn there as I introduce a couple things for you. A uh, quick review for uh, those who uh, were here last Sunday or maybe were not able to attend or catch us on live stream. Uh, to bring you up to speed, Paul was in Berea with Timothy and Silas preaching and planting churches, and um, this upset some of the Jews at Thessalonica. They began to agitate the crowds and stir up some things. So Paul was escorted out of town, and he sailed some 200 miles to Athens, Greece. He gave instructions to Timothy and Silas to say, come and join me as, pos as soon as possible. And here is where we pick up today in verse 16. Paul is in Athens awaiting the arrival of his companions. And in our text this morning, uh, we're going to see how Paul engages the Greek culture and how it should challenge us today in how we share our faith with others here in our day and time. So as, our, as we read the text, I want us to think about this question. I want you to ponder over this throughout the morning. How am I engaging the culture where I live? How am I engaging the culture where I live? We're also going to see that Paul sends a strong message to um, Athens to repent because a day of judgment is coming. Church, we have the same message today to deliver. Repent because there is a day of judgment coming. And if Paul truly believed that this day was coming when he was alive, then how much closer must we be to that approaching day of judgment in our day and time? So let's look at our text beginning with verse uh, 16 in Acts chapter 17. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, and he said, may we learn about this new teaching you are representing, or presenting, I mean, because what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. So let's pause there a minute. Consider the culture that Paul is in here in Athens. Uh, this city was the center of philosophy and intelligence. Uh, you've heard some names that I'm going to drop here that you're probably very familiar with. People like Hippocrates, known as the uh, father of medicine. Socrates, known as the father of Western philosophy. He was the one that taught Plato, who later taught Aristotle. Also in Athens, this was the uh, city of artists. Uh, the statue of Zeus is considered one of the wonders of the world. 
There's famous temples that were created. Uh, the most famous one that we're aware of is probably the Parthenon. This temple was built for the Greek god of war, Ares, who was believed to correspond with the Roman god of war called Mars. So that's where we get the name of Areopagus or Mars Hill. There's thousands of statues, thousands of artworks that were created for the gods during that time that Paul was there. We actually learned from a uh, historian that at the time of Nero, Athens contained maybe as many as 3,000 huge public statues throughout the city. Another ancient writer states that every gateway, every porch carried its own protecting God. Every street, every square had its sanctuaries. Some have estimated there was probably about 10,000 people living in Athens at the time. And there's believed to have been maybe as, 30, as many as 30,000 statues and little gods throughout the city. In fact, a Petronius, a contemporary writer um, during Nero's time, says with tongue-in-cheek that it was easier to find a god at Athens than a man. <laughs> that gives you an idea of what he was going up against here. This was the culture that Paul was walking into. And it should make us think of our own culture and ask such questions as like, uh, how should we engage the intellectuals? How do we engage the skeptics today? Let's look at what Paul did and learn from that this morning, church. In verse 16, we see Paul's attention wasn't really on all the things that we would call maybe the tourist trap things, but rather he looked at the city from a Christian worldview, and because of that, it was the amount of idolatry that he saw throughout the city that was, as Scripture calls it, distressing Paul so much. The Greek word translated here for distressed or provoked, it's a little difficult to translate in the English because it comes from a word called paroxino, from which we get pretty graphic words to describe things like spasms, seizures, and outburst. So it's a very strong word being used here. But it causes us to think as you look at your own neighborhood, where you live, where at the city of Westminster, or extended down into Baltimore. What concerns you the most as you view it from the lens of being a Christian? In other words, are you distressed at what you see in our neighborhoods today? You see, as Christians, we can enjoy some of the same things, some of the same places as unbelievers do, uh, but we should look differently, see things differently. See, everyone has a worldview, right? Uh, but as Christians, we're going to see the arts different. We're going to see uh, ethnicity, the poor, the widow, the orphan different. We're going to listen to music differently. We see the beginning of life and the end of life differently. We handle money differently. We, we should handle relationships and marriage and family differently. Because when our lives are changed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and his grace and mercy invades our lives, we see life differently than we did before Christ. Luke points out that there's two different worldviews going on here in Athens. He, he says that the Epicureans and the Stoics uh, were the two schools of thought, and I'm going to share more about them in just a moment. But would you agree with me this morning, church, that our world is full of idols also, much like it was in Paul's day? They may look different, they may sound different, but we have them, don't we? 
Yet we can go all the way back in the Old Testament to Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verses 7 through 9, and we find there the first commandment that was recorded in those Ten Commandments, what we call the Ten Commandments. That first commandment says, Do not have any other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them. Because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's iniquity to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Martin Luther, many years ago, explained that if we get this one commandment right, the other commandments begin to fall in line a little bit better. Because this one involves who and what we worship. Let me ask you this morning, church, who or what do you worship? You may say, well, I don't bow to any idols. Uh, I'm not like the Greeks. Let me challenge you just a little bit to rethink that. Um, I love what author and seminary professor Tony Murata wrote in his commentary about idols. Uh, this is a quote from him. An idol is anything you turn to when we need something only Jesus can provide. Man, isn't that good? And he continues to say, idols aren't just statues worshipped at shrines. They are substitute gods and functional saviors that supplant the true and living God in the human heart. You see, idols can take the form of many different things. It can be the need for approval from your peers. It can be the pursuit of money and power. It can be the uncontrolled drive for sex and pleasure or consumption of food or too much caffeine. Maybe it's the overboard enthusiasm for sports teams or relentless pursuit of just more and more and more things. Bowing to and building lives around these things only leads to sorrow and dissatisfaction and emptiness. And instead of needing more things, we desperately need the one who created these things and created you and me. Now notice how in verse 17, Paul manages his feelings about the idols. Notice what he does here. It says, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and those who worship God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. In other words, Paul engaged the people. He listened to them. He dialogued with them. And he debated with them. Paul reasoned, it says, with the Jews and those who worship God. This means to address or take time to examine and consider a topic. So he preached and he taught in the synagogue, but notice he also went outside the walls and into the marketplace where the rest of the people do life together. This is such a teachable moment for us, church, because the question is this, how can we engage people effectively in the marketplace? Well, we have to go, first of all. We have to go outside. My hat goes off to you that are businessmen and women and tradesmen, service people who, who work in the community day in and day out. You have more opportunities to extend your faith to others and engage in these conversations than, than some of us as pastors have because you're out there every day for hours at a time to be able to do this. And Paul set a great example with this. You see, there are many who are good at telling people that they need to change, 
but they aren't willing to connect with them and love them to Christ. Paul was called to go, not sit and soak, and so are we. We need both compassion and boldness to engage with others that don't think like us or look like us or sound like us. I love what Pastor Matt uh, gave us last week as a charge. He said that WBC is not measuring our church success, if you will, by our seating capacity, how many we can get in the building, but rather by our sending capacity. How many are going out of here into the world? How many are going with their D groups and their life groups into the city? How many are going to Haiti or Edmondson? How many are engaging the homeless, the single moms, the students, the widows, the orphans? Who's going into the jails and the hospitals? And notice some more things to learn in verse 18. Paul is engaging the people in the marketplace. The philosophers then begin to debate them, what he's saying, to the point that they called him an ignorant show-off. That's not real kind, is it? An ignorant show-off, and when I dug into that a little bit, the word that's used for that in the original language actually means seed picker. Seed picker. It's like a bird that goes to this bush or tree, picks a seed, flies over here, goes over to another bush or tree, picks a seed, and so forth and so on. And so it was like, well, why did they call him that? Well, they're saying, it sounds like you're taking an idea from here, an idea from here, an idea from here, but none of it's gelling together. So they accused him of being a seed picker. So what's so significant about this? See, the Athenians loved new things, and they loved to debate about it. But what they really needed was not necessarily new ideas. They needed new life. We love new things today, too, don't we? We love to get a new phone. We love to get new updates, new music, new clothes, new cars. Christmas is coming, and hopefully we'll find a couple new gifts under the tree with our name on, right? But we don't need a new gospel. The gospel is unchanging. It stays the same. The gospel message of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection that Paul preached that brought new life is the same message that we preach today. And it still brings new life in our day and time. And notice also who wants to debate with Paul. It's the Epicureans and the Stoics. They actually invited Paul to join them at the Areopagus, Mars Hill. The leading intellects invited and gathered to hear Paul. Now, they were not spiritually interested necessarily in Jesus, but they were intellectually interested in some things that were unfamiliar to them because it was new. And, and so maybe Jesus was just another God to them, but not the one true God. And they just wanted to hear more about it because that's what they did. Epicurus uh, taught that the world was made up of atoms and the world was purely material. He tried to uh, get his followers to understand not to have any fear of death and taught them that the best way to please the gods was to enjoy pleasure and live a life apart from pain. Stoics, on the other hand, were what we would call pantheists. They didn't believe in a personal God. They believed there was something out there bigger than them, but they didn't have a belief in a God that they could have a personal relationship with. They kept a stiff upper lip. They responded to things very calmly, to things that happened to them. They lived by reason. 
For the Stoics, emphasis was logos, or reason. It was viewed as the highest expression of nature for them. So basically, the Epicureans are saying, if it feels good, let's do it. And the Stoics, on the other hand, are saying, grin and bear it, because you can't do anything about it. Those are the two schools of thought. Today, we would probably say, deal with it, or suck it up, buttercup, or something like that, right? <laughs> Both worldviews are hopeless and meaningless. In our culture today, we have about a third of our American adults who are under the age of 30 who classify themselves as having no religious affiliation. They, they've been given a label called nuns, not the Catholic nuns, but the N-O-N-E-S, meaning no religious affiliation. And knowing that, the worst thing that the church can do is separate ourselves from the world and live in some kind of world of pretend wrapped in protective bubble wrap. Like Paul in Athens, we have to engage the world humbly, but boldly in truth and grace and with love. And as we continue on in our text, we see how Paul bridges the gap here between the Stoics and the Christian thought by finding common ground. That's his next step. He finds common ground in their philosophy by saying that the use of reason can lead to the knowledge of God. See what he did there? Notice that Paul intentionally went to the synagogue and intentionally went to the marketplace, but also notice that he was taken or invited to Mars Hill. The understanding of the gospel truth would be at different levels at each place, and it's the same here today. Note also that Paul began to engage with the intellectuals in the marketplace. He didn't take, for instance, this distressed feeling, as Scripture calls it, about idolatry, and he didn't vent it out in anger to the Athenians because they thought differently than he did. Instead, he took his faith public by the way he lived and he talked. He didn't hold up signs condemning idolatry. He didn't start riots or bring violence to the streets because they were different. He started a conversation. See the difference? You and I can do that too. This would be like you or I being invited to speak about your faith in a community town hall meeting, maybe in a public school or a college campus. Perhaps you will be placed in front of government officials or politicians. Or maybe you have a platform on a stage somewhere where you have the opportunity to share what you really believe in. It could also be your atheist coworker or neighbor or family member that you need to address the truth to. So beginning in verses 22, here's the address that he gives to the, to the Athenians as he stood in the middle of Mars Hill. Look at verse 22 and following. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in uh, shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality, 
to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and we move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since we are God's offspring then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. What's Paul's there? Paul makes a comment here about the obvious in the surrounding culture that he's in, that they were extremely religious. So he, find, he finds something that they can all agree on. And in verse 23, in fact, he says, you were so religious about the objects that you worship that you even have an altar to an unknown God, just in case we forgot one. We got that covered now, right? The word unknown, which is uh, agnostos, means having no knowledge of or no acquaintance with. Then he takes that observation that they all agree on, and he points them to the true God that is unknown to them, as he says, in their ignorance. Paul gives a great example here of how to communicate the gospel. He did not begin by reciting, uh, for instance, Jewish poetry, because he did that in other cities and that applied there, but it would not make any sense here in the Greek culture. He began by building a case for the one true God using examples that they understood in their own culture. And then he established this common ground by emphasizing what they agreed on about God. And finally, we'll see this at the end of the chapter, he focuses in on Jesus centering on the resurrection, knowing that they like to hear new things. And man, this was definitely something new for them because they did not believe in bodily resurrection. And he begins in 24 with the God of creation, if you will, saying he is the Lord of heaven and earth, that he doesn't live in shrines made by hands. And then in verse 25, he tells them that God not only created everything, but he sustains what he created. The point here, church, is this. God doesn't need us, but we sure do need God. Amen? In verse 26, Paul explains that God created every nationality from one man and that he has determined their appointed times and where they will live. So not only is God our creator and God our sustainer of life, but now he's speaking into how much he loves us. Why did God do that? Verse 27 says, so that they might seek God because he is not far from us. See, we have no excuse for not knowing about God because he has revealed himself through his son to us. He is all around us. And man, that was new information for these philosophers. God cannot be received through some materialistic idol or ritual. He alone should be worshipped in spirit and in truth rather than some glorified Marvel movie hero God or some spiritual type of Santa Claus that we only interact with when we want something. See, Paul is speaking into this pagan culture with a topic that also addresses our culture. And in our day and time, we call it racism. 
This statement is countercultural to ones who spew such hatred speech like, why don't those people go back to where they came from? It also calls out those who want to proclaim some kind of God-ordained racial superiority over others. Instead, Paul is saying all humans are made in his image. And there was a love of God for all people. In fact, he goes one step further and says all races can live anywhere on earth. And the sovereign God has actually appointed times and boundaries of where we live. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He starts with the creation story. He reminds them that even some of their poets have alluded to this. He actually quotes one of their poets by saying, for we are also his offspring. And then he adds on that, since we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think the divine nature is an image created by man. Here again is such a teachable point for us. How do we bring that into our context in our day and time? Let me give you just one example that I came up with for us. How we speak to a student who grew up in the church but has fallen away should sound different than the conversation with a student that has no church experience or background. They both need Jesus in their lives, right? But the method we use is going to be different. Conversations I have in Haiti are different than here in the States. Those who believe in witchcraft and voodoo have a different worldview than we do. And I have to somehow find common ground to start with there. Paul helps us understand that those who are not followers of Christ yet are not without a worldview of some kind. It doesn't mean their minds are like empty slates that they don't think and have opinions or convictions. No, everybody has a worldview. And the culture around them is what influences that. In our day and time, minds have been deeply influenced by songwriters, artists, social media, Netflix, news threads, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We all have a worldview. We all have convictions and strong opinions, and we must counter these with the gospel and with conversations about the very nature of God. That's what Paul did. Conversations that are culturally relevant to the time we're living in and the people we're actually talking to face to face. It doesn't mean we have to watch every episode of every binge-worthy TV show that's available, but it doesn't hurt to be somewhat aware of what the rest of the nation is watching and listening to so you can engage in that conversation. <laughs> throw this out. If a friend I'm trying to reach for Christ is all about curling, I'm going to learn about curling a little bit, right? <laughs> if they're a lacrosse player, I'm going to try to figure out what lacrosse is all about. At least I can have a somewhat of a little bit of a conversation there. You see, as Paul comes to his concluding thoughts, he comes on pretty strong in verses 30 and 31, because now he's getting to the part about repentance. He says, regardless of what you've learned, you are spiritually ignorant. And he commands all people to repent because judgment day is coming. Jesus has been given authority to be our judge, but if repentance happens, the judge can be your savior. The one who God appointed to judge the world was raised from the dead. 
We all came after Adam, fallen humans born into sin. But now because of Jesus Christ, he not only is our judge in perfect righteousness, but he can be our savior as well. You see, whoever repents, even at the 11th hour, whoever turns from their sinful ways and turns to God, finds a God of mercy and love, not judgment. Repentance, as described by one writer, is the act whereby one turns from his or her sin, idolatry, and rebellion, and turns to God in faith. Repentance is not just feeling sorry. It's not just changing your mind, but it's a turning around, a complete change of direction of one's life. That was 1980 for me. Most of you have heard my story. I surrendered my life in 1980 to Christ and said, Lord, take this broken mess I've made of it and fix it. I cried out, I'm tired of living a two-faced life. I cried out, God, I'm tired of pretending to be a Christian on Sunday and living like the world the other six days a week. I said a prayer when I was nine, but my life was not bearing fruit. And as an adult, I started getting serious with my commitment to Christ. And you see, it's because I heard the, <coughs> heard the gospel in a very different way. It came from the testimony of a long-haired musician in a concert outside of the church walls. He engaged me in a very different way, with different music, with a different way of delivering a testimony. It was the gospel, but it was delivered in a different way that reached me. Because of that man and because of Jesus Christ, my life direction radically changed, and God's still working on me years later. But it all started with repentance. And as we close out our chapter, look at verses 32 through 34. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Notice it said, some joined Paul. Others wanted to hear more. The, the story of this is not that this address to the Athenians was this great uh, wave of salvation that happened like at Pentecost. There wasn't thousands of people that came to Christ. It was a few. It was a few that said they joined Paul, a few that said, I'd like to hear more. And others walked away. What can we learn from that? Excuse me. What can we learn from Paul's witness? God calls us to witness, but the results are up to God. Our part is to be faithful in sharing the gospel. God will bring the increase if willing to share. If only if you believe, it's still worth whatever you endured to share that story. Paul changes his approach to his audience based on who he's dealing with. We can do the same. A couple practical ways for us this morning. Maybe for some of you, it's, it's a very simple next step. During this Christmas season, maybe instead of getting in a debate or an argument with someone who says happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, maybe it means that you focus more on the person rather than on what came out of their mouth. <coughs> Be willing to hear their story. Have the patience to hear their story before passing judgment. 
for others that maybe are more artsy or musically inclined. <clears throat> maybe it's, it's learning from bands like John Foreman's Switchfoot, who have been doing this for years, or more recently, um, Maverick City Music. A worship team and a band that plays music as Christians from a Christian worldview, but their songs cross over into other markets. They play in places where most Christian bands would not play. <clears throat> Maybe it starts with just asking someone, how can I pray for you? Maybe that starts the conversation. Maybe it's inviting someone different than you to your home for a hot meal. Maybe it's taking a hot meal to someone. Ask, ask the Lord <clears throat> what he can do through that with you. Maybe it's to start a group in your neighborhood or a group at, with your coworkers who don't know the Lord. And you just debate, you engage in conversation. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up to close out for us. <clears throat> but let me, uh, let me ask you this. Um, thank you, bro. Almost made it, sorry. <clears throat> Let me ask you this. As we go into the Christmas season, um, a couple gospel responses for you. First one, how am I engaging the culture where I live? Really ponder that. Take it to your groups and your classes this week. Say, how am I actually engaging the area that I live? And secondly, maybe there's something you need to repent of, because it all starts there. Recognizing that you need to change direction in your life. God's going to be there for you. Paul said, he's not far. He's very near. And some of you may just need to change direction from going this way to going this way. And you'll find that God is right there. He was there all the time. He's not far away. He's right there. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, use your word to guide us this morning. We know that repentance leads to new life in you. Father, may we have the boldness of Paul to be the witness we need to be to engage our culture with the truth, the truth of the gospel. Father, would you empower our people to go? We desire to be a sending church that's making disciples, but also deploying them into spiritual bow. And Lord, we do this for your honor and your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If anyone needs prayer this morning, I'm going to be right over here. If you want to see myself or Pastor Matt or Pastor Bill after the service, please come to us. We'd love to pray and talk with you. God bless you.
loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished, the end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has
morning, church. Well, I thank you for being here today. Again, my name is Matt. I'm the lead pastor here, and I want to welcome you to WBC, but also encourage you to get a part of Alpha uh, Wednesdays in January, 6.45 p.m. with me and some leaders of the church. Uh, we'll meet together and talk about your first steps in discipleship here. Otherwise, remember, you're sent in the midst of darkness to light it up. Y'all go make a difference in this city. We love you. Bye. You have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more about following after Jesus, uh, please contact us and we would love to talk more about your relationship with Christ and how you can grow in your spiritual journey.